The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, you remember we are into the practical section of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. In fact, we're coming to the end of that practical section. Paul has been dealing with various relations. He's dealt with husbands and wives parents to children, children to parents. Now he comes bond servants or slaves and masters. He's speaking, perhaps we might think, in a peculiarly uh, culturally relevant fashion. In a, in a sense, he is, but he speaks of servants and masters in a way that we might speak also of employers and employees. Or perhaps we can think of other relations of unequal authority. Both master and servant are essentially to conduct themselves in the same way. They are to live and serve as unto Christ, as unto the Lord, fulfilling their duties faithfully. And of course, as we think of the role of servant and of master, we are drawn inexorably, I think, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great servant of the Lord, and the Lord and Master of all, that he is the one who, in actual and real terms, has fulfilled both these callings with perfection. He filled them with perfection, loving his Father, and doing so that he might deliver us from our sins, and also set for us an example of godliness that we might follow. The passage before us, is simply in two parts, verses 5 to 9, the duties of slaves or servants or bond servants, depending on what you have in your translation, and then verse 9, the duties of masters. So we can extrapolate from that the duties, we might say, of employees or those under authority, and then in verse 9, the duty of those in authority. Look firstly then at the duty of slaves, or as my version says, bond servants. Before we actually get to the text, I think we need to consider two matters. One is concerning the cultural realities of Paul's day. Slaves, servants, and masters existed. They were real. Slavery uh, in the worst sense of that word, was a reality in Paul's day. In Greek culture, it was common for military captives uh, or even criminals to be taken into slavery where they would serve. We see debtors also becoming slaves and servants. Roman culture also, uh, the context of Paul's writing, uh, uh, my research shows that they were more harsh to their slaves, where slaves literally had no rights whatsoever. Uh, and Scripture itself is clear with respect to slaves that slavery is not always improper. It might be harsh to our ears, but we have to face that reality. It's clear that the kind of slavery that we've seen and we know where we think of person-stealing uh, that kind of enslavement is always wrong. In fact, it's punishable by death in Scripture. Also unjust is an unfair and unjust treatment of slaves. 
But in Scripture, debtor slavery is palatable, the kind of slavery where if I owe you a debt and I'm not able to pay it, I enter your service as a servant or slave until that debt is paid off that is found in Scripture. The Mosaic law itself uh, includes um, provision for this when uh, robbers and thieves cannot pay their debt, they are to be sold into slavery. Uh, Even then, all servants and slaves would be released on the Jubilee year. Scripture everywhere opposes the abuses and the cruelty, the man-theft that is associated with most forms of slavery. We need to be very, very clear about that. But it does allow for legitimate servanthood or bondservants or even slaves. Now, also a note about our own cultural moment, not just Paul's day. How does this impact upon us? We have to say we live in an age which hates authority. It's very, very clear. And many people in our age equate authority structures with abuse structures, as if authority equals abuse. We've seen that in recent years as a product of what we know as critical theory. Critical theory is a a family of theories. There's many of them. There's race, there's gender, there's feminist theory, post-colonial theory, uh, gay theory, and so on and so forth. Uh, All these theories seek to identify uh, authority structures in society and seeks to turn those authority structures on their head. Uh, these theories came out of the Frankfurt School uh, of Philosophy. Uh, we have the philosophers uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida uh, building upon these theories. Critical theory seeks to overturn every authority that it sees in society. It posits that authority structures are man-made and only exist to serve the ruling class, and therefore they should be overthrown. We see this in political theory. We call it Marxism. We see it in social theory. We call it cultural Marxism. When you think about it, it's a self-perpetuating system. You have an authority structure, the oppressor and the oppressed. The oppressor is to be overthrown and replaced by the oppressed. The oppressed then becomes what? The oppressor, and is itself to be overthrown. You see, it gives a lie to the own, its own system. If we're to overthrow these authority structures, let's start with God, shall we? Let's start with the church, the family. Please try again. Sorry about that. The family. Let's talk about the state. In fact, there are many authority structures in society which are legitimate and God-ordained. You'll notice that Paul, when he speaks about slavery here or servanthood, knows nothing of the revolutionary aspect of overturning the power structure, the authority structure that exists clearly in this text, slaves and masters. Paul knows nothing about overturning that idea. 
He is not even seeking in one sense to call out that slavery here is improper. Scripture elsewhere teaches us on that, of course. It's interesting, is it not, that Paul does not have a word to say about the propriety of these relationships. Rather simply, he identifies how the people in those relationships should conduct themselves. Masters, Christian masters, should conduct themselves in a godly fashion. Christian bond servants should conduct themselves in a Christian fashion. Paul simply states here, does he not, that because you are Christian, whether slave or master, that will shape everything you think of and everything you do, regardless of your status in society. It's interesting, is it not? It's been acknowledged even by non-Christians. The historian Tom Holland, who I think may have been converted The historian Tom Holland said, Christianity gave women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had. Now, what are we seeing here? That Christianity is giving bond servants a dignity that no other dispensation ever had. Paul is simply saying, as Christians behave like Christians, regardless of your station in life. Servants. Servants, he says in verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. He tells them positively how they are to conduct themselves. How they are to conduct themselves positively. The first duty you'll notice there is what? Obey your earthly masters. The first duty for servants, slaves, bond servants, is to obey their earthly masters. Interestingly, it's precisely the same command that is given in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. When Paul deals with this matter uh, in the corresponding passage in Titus, he writes, Bond servants, be submissive to your own masters. To your own masters. Just as Paul has earlier said in Ephesians that wives should submit to their own husbands, and in that sense, he's not placing every wife under a duty of submission to every husband but their own. So now he also says the same of slaves. Slaves, you are to submit to your own masters. A slave or a servant is not bound by an authority structure to all masters alike but his own. In other words, Paul is delineating the right and proper, and I use this word carefully, even the the legitimate relation of slave and master here. He is saying slaves are not slaves to all, but to their own master. And the manner of their obedience is to be submissive and sincere. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. A sincere heart in fear and trembling as they would obey Christ, he said. Did we hear that? It's a staggering charter for those under authority. Obey those over you 
as you would obey Christ. Obedience is the heart of the matter here, and it's the matter of the heart. Do so, he says, with fear and trembling. Is that fear and trembling of their earthly masters? Some commentators say yes, it could be, but I tend to think it's more fear and trembling of their father who is in heaven. Because fear and trembling is a disposition that Christians are called to in Scripture when they are given a specific task. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.15 will say, Christians, you received Christ in fear and trembling. He says in Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Of who? Of your Father in heaven. Be in fear and in trembling before your Lord, before, as we'll read in verse 9, your heavenly master. That's to say, friends, slaves, servants, employees, any of us under authority, and at some point that's all of us, we are to conduct ourselves in fear and in trembling. We are to do our service whether slaves or employees, whatever our station, as those who are serving the living and true God. Paul says, as you would to Christ in verse 5. Serve as you serve Christ, irrespective of your position in life. Irrespective of your position in life, serve as you would Christ. Paul's not saying, well, you're Christians now. You're no longer bound by your earthly authority structures. He doesn't say that. He says, if you're a slave and you're a Christian, then you're a Christian slave. If you're under authority of some kind, you are so as a Christian. He says that to serve with sincerity in heart, the true heart. It put me in mind of what happens in the British Parliament. At the beginning of each uh, new parliament, every member of parliament must go before the officials of parliament and swear an oath of loyalty to the monarch. That puts some people in trouble, especially the Irish Republican uh, members of parliament, members the political wing of the old Irish Republican army, who go before the parliament and when they take the oath of office, they cross their fingers behind their back in an act of insincerity. Insincerity is unchristian. It, it's deceptive. Being a Christian prohibits you from that kind of insincere service. Because if it's insincere, it's not done unto Christ. And that's ultimately the calling here for all of us to serve as we would under the Lord. Paul is taken up by this idea. Verse 5, he says, serve as you would Christ. Verse 6, he says, as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as unto the Lord. He couldn't make it more clear. Whatever our station in life, our service, our calling that we have at that point is to be unto the Lord. If we are insincere, we are self-pleasing. 
We are self-glorifying. We are deceitful. And our labor and our service is a lie. We have ulterior motives. We are not to be those, verse 7, who render service, uh, sorry, uh, not to be as man-pleasers, bondservants of Christ. We are to render service, verse 7, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That is to say, though we have earthly masters, each one of us does in one way or another, we have earthly masters. We are to render service as unto God not ignoring our earthly master, but serving them as we serve God. Now, why should the Christian behave in this way? Well, we could say because it's the Christian thing to do and we'd be right. It's clearly the Christian way to behave. But Paul says more than that in this text. He gives us all who are under authority in one way or another, a great motivation, especially, I would say, those who find themselves perhaps smarting under authority or struggling under that authority. Why should we work that way? He tells us in verse 8. He says, verse 5 to verse 7, this is how you should behave. Verse 8 is the why. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This he will receive back from the Lord. We are to do what we do to the glory of God. And God in his grace has ordained a reward for that. Father didn't need to do that. He could just demand perfect obedience from us, which he does indeed. But he says also to us in his grace, look, I will motivate you with goodness. I will bless you as a father blesses his children. I will bless you. He says, I will see your good deeds. I will see your sincere service. And as you have done it unto me, so I will bless you accordingly. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. What is it to do good? It's to do all our labors, to perform all our service as unto Christ, as servants of the Lord. To do whatever we are called to do unto the glory of God. And it's the Lord who rewards. Not, not the earthly master here. We will receive back from the Lord. The Lord will bless. The Lord will repay. The Lord will be gracious. Friends, even if we find ourselves in the lowest estate possible, of course, our times are different to Paul's times. We are to glorify God by this kind of service. In any condition, friends, low or raised up high, God sees your service. And if we're honest, most of our service is hidden from the eyes of man anyway. And it's good that it should be so so that we do not perform for men and we receive our reward from men. That's passing. Most of the things we do, I'm guessing anyway, are not seen by everyone else in the church. 
the quiet acts of service in the home, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, even in the church, where we serve not by advertising it, or even those who find themselves in particularly hard situations, perhaps in hard marriages, hard places of employment, where you feel that your earthly master is in some way or your earthly authority is is mean-spirited or spiteful or any other evil thing, God reminds us that he sees your service. He sees your service, and when done under him, it pleases him greatly. When no one else sees your service, when no one else can reward that service, when you feel cast down by that service, God still sees it. And God is pleased when his children serve him out of sincerity. Calvin writes of this passage, what a powerful consolation. However unworthy, however ungrateful or cruel their masters may be, God will accept their service as rendered unto himself. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement to us all here tonight? Granted, we're not faced with Paul's particular scenario here of of bondservants or slaves. But what a wonderful encouragement to each one of us in our various settings of life, home, employment, neighborhood, church, wherever we find ourselves, to press on in sincere service to the Lord, not so that men might see us. And our Father in heaven rewards. Paul also speaks to masters, verse 9. Duties of masters, duties of employers, duties of those in authority. There are really three parts of teaching here for the masters. Paul says, masters, do the same to them. There's the first. Secondly, he says, and stop your threatening. And thirdly, he provides a motivation, the likes of which we've just seen to the servants knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Do the same to them. That's to say the master's disposition to the authority relation is to be essentially the same as the servants. They are to conduct themselves in like manner as unto the Lord in their ruling. He says, secondly, stop your threatening an idea which is antithetical to Christian conduct. And thirdly, he provides a motivation. There is no partiality with God. He says, first of all, in verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Paul is saying, masters, employers, those in authority, conduct yourself in like manner as I have just explained and described to your servants. Quite possible there were masters and servants in the same church. Almost certainly there was, otherwise Paul wouldn't have written this. He's actually holding the master to the same standard of conduct and theology as he holds the servant. Why? Because the end of verse 9. The substance of the duties of the servant were to honor their earthly masters, serve (coughs) serve them as they served the Lord. 
The equivalent is true for masters, for those in authority, for employers. Honor your servants, honor your employees, honor those under the, under you. Treat them with grace and goodness and kindness and with the dignity they deserve. Treat them as unto the Lord. Rule over them as unto the Lord. Paul's saying to them, if you're a Christian and you find yourself as a master over men, a person in authority, how could you be a master according to the standards of the world? How could you do that as a Christian? He's really saying to them, no, as God has treated you, dear master, so treat those who you find under your care and authority. Rule over them as unto the Lord. And then he deals secondly, in, again in verse 9, with the idea of threats and coercion. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. We see this idea of threatening contravenes a multitude of principles of Christian conduct. We could go to the Ten Commandments to see this. Or we could say, see what our Lord says when he says, love your enemy or turn the other cheek. Uh, that's the very opposite of making threats towards someone. Uh, he has already said in the epistle to the Ephesians, submit to one another as in the Lord, that general principle of submission applicable to each one of us and every relationship here. We are each to be submissive to each other in the sense that we are not to stand on our own rights. We are to count others better than ourselves. Masters, you are to do this even with your servants. You see, it's thoroughly inconsistent for a Christian to breathe threats at another person. We're not talking about the duties of self-defense and so on and so forth. We're talking about normal, everyday relationships. Paul is saying the kind of lording it that we see in the world that the Gentiles do is to have nothing to do with Christian authority structures. It's utterly inconsistent to work through those relationships of authority by means of threat at least the kind of threat that Paul is speaking of. That's not to say that those in authority, employers particularly, or governors or elders or parents, is not saying we should do away with them. Neither is Paul saying that these different groups in authority are wrong to be in authority. No employers, governors, elders, parents, so on and so forth, are clearly appointed by God. They have duties, they have a role, and they must do those faithfully. For example, an employer is to hold an employee accountable for his work. That's being faithful, but not by means of the kind of threat that was common in these relationships. Paul is simply saying this, be wise, be kind, be gracious. Be loving, act in accordance with the role and function and authority God has given you. And he tells them lastly why they should behave 
like this. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing, same word as in the earlier verse 8, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In other words, the Christian master is to know that he also has a master. And that master, God, is the same master of the Christian servant. He is master over free and slave alike. And we're told at the end of this passage, there is no partiality with him. He's not overly impressed by those who would lord it over those under them. He's not overly impressed by the kind of man-pleasing that some servants were engaged in. The Lord is master to all. He shows no bias towards masters, and he shows no bias towards servants. God will render to each according to his deeds. If good, he will repay them with good. If evil, he will repay them with evil. The reality is this, whether in authority or under authority, we must each give an account to our Lord for our conduct, whether good or bad. I think it's interesting, is it not, that Paul has spent far less time, one verse compared to four verses, one verse dealing with masters and their duties, and four verses dealing with the duties of servants or those under authority. Usually that's an indicator of the writer's emphasis. He spends four, four uh, uh, verses in one and one in the other. Why is this? Perhaps there's just some practical reasons. Paul was living in an age where perhaps many of their Christians had lost their employments, lost their businesses, lost their positions, perhaps even as a result of their conversion unto Christ. Perhaps because of the dispersion of the Jews out of Israel as they fled, persecution meant that they were starting from the bottom once again as people under authority. Or perhaps it's simply because most of us are generally not the great and good, so to speak of society, we spend our lives under authority. Or perhaps it's just that we struggle more under authority than we do exercising it. I think we struggle in both, frankly. Reminded are we not of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. He was perfect in his service to his Father, the four songs written about him in the prophecy of Isaiah, about how he came to do the Father's will, will to do it perfectly, to satisfy divine justice and bring us unto the Father. That's the role of the servant of the Lord. We can be thankful, can't we, that our servant, the great servant, is also the great master himself understands perfectly what it is to be one who reigns and rules with righteousness and with tenderness and with care and with sensitivity. He has not only given us an example, he has delivered us from our sins unto this very end. 
that we should be called then to live in a certain way. Paul here, dear friends, is teaching us about a Christian view, not just of labor or slavery, of masterhood, but a Christian view of authority. A Christian view of authority. It's God appointed. And therefore, if it's God appointed, we are to serve as unto the Lord in that authority structure. Yes, he teaches us about employment. Yes, he teaches us about labor. Yes, he teaches us about labor, even in perhaps the worst of situations, even in slavery. But ultimately, you see, he's calling us to let our salvation determine our conduct. That's why he spent the first three chapters laying down the doctrine of salvation, and now he spends the last three chapters laying down doctrine of conduct. Let your salvation determine how you think. Let your salvation determine how you conduct yourself. Your calling is to be self-consciously Christian in every setting in life, without fail. You see, Paul, while God is calling us to be upright in our many and varied callings, irrespective of whether those callings are to riches or to poverty, to slavery or to freedom, as an employee or as an employer, we are called to be upright. And we're reminded at least twice in this text of the great motivation for this. Not only is it the righteous, upright thing to do. But more than that, the Lord will bless. The Lord will vindicate. The Lord will do his perfect and wise will in our lives. May God grant us the grace that as we work and as we serve, we do so unto him. Let's pray. We praise you, Father in heaven, for your word to our hearts. We praise you that even in the life of our Lord, we see this very pattern displayed for us. We praise you, Lord God, that the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. That in service to you, though our Savior was laid low, he has been raised to the highest heaven. We pray, Lord, you would give us faith that we, your people, might serve you well. You might grant us grace, Lord God, in all our various callings, in home, in places of employment, in society, our neighborhoods, and in the church of the Savior, that we would conduct ourselves faithfully. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.